The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Bibles, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5. And this evening we are continuing our study on the Holy Spirit. And you'll notice that I have switched our text verses to uh, the book of Galatians. We have been looking at Acts chapter 19. And the the topic is, who is the Holy Spirit? And that's prompted by that question that we found in the 19th chapter of Acts. And the question that was asked was, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And the answer to that question was, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And as we've learned, the the answer actually meant that we do not know or don't know anything about the Holy Spirit's special work that he's come to do in a believer. And so we've kind of taken that question and expanded on it, and uh, we've covered quite a bit of material uh, speaking about this. So this evening, I have switched our text verses to Galatians because this fits a little bit better the topic that I want to talk to you about tonight. So if you look at Galatians chapter 5 and beginning in verse number 16, the Apostle Paul is writing and he says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with affections and lust. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now I hope that everybody here would take and just read those verses over and over and over again. And just check that out to see if your life matches what the Apostle Paul says in those verses. It would be a very, very good thing for you to do. Well, my subject this evening is the work of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk tonight about verifying the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Now, as I said last week, as we begin here, our outline looks a little bit strange because all all I'm doing is just sort of adding on to it each week as we go. So tonight we're on point number three, D, number six. And number three in your outline is the Holy Spirit is God's agent. And uh, you should be well familiar with that by this point, that the Holy Spirit is the person of the Godhead that is active in the world today, that God does his work through the administration of the Holy Spirit. And so we've covered thus far that he is the agent in the ministry of creation, he is the agent in the ministry of Christ, the agent in the ministry of the canon, and now we're in the fourth part of the Holy Spirit's work, and that is he is the agent in the ministry of the Christian. And he is the agent in the ministry of a Christian 
for several different things that we've discussed so far. Regeneration, sanctification, glorification, communication, and then in the last message we covered the word demonstration. So the, the evidence of the Holy Spirit uh, work in the, in, a, in the Christian's life, or he does demonstrate his presence, and last week we talked primarily about spiritual gifts, that each of us has been given one or more spiritual gifts for the purpose of doing God's work and for edifying the body of Christ. And there is none of us that is capable of such a high and holy calling to even be able to do God's work at all unless the Holy Spirit should give us that ability. We do these things in the power of the Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit gives people in the church for different kinds of work. Apostle Paul told us there in the book of Ephesians that God has called pastors and teachers and evangelists. And in 1 Corinthians, he talked about the diversity of the body and, and how the church needs diversity and the administration of these different spiritual gifts so that all the work of the church can be done. And you notice that the Apostle Paul, or if you read that chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, that Paul talks about this diversity of spiritual gifts, and he compares that to the human body. And, and he says that just like the human body has different parts for different functions, we have ears and hear, for hearing, and we have noses for smelling, we have eyes for seeing. He said if the entire body was one of those things, then the body couldn't work like it should. If all the body was, was uh, uh, entire body was ears, then there would be no smelling or seeing. And if the entire body was noses, there's no hearing or seeing. If the entire body has eyes, there is no smelling or hearing. So God gifts us differently in his church so that all of the work can be done. And God expects us to fulfill those roles. He expects us to take up a position in the church. And so if you find that you have not got a spot to fill in the church, then there's one of two things that's wrong. Oh, the first thing that could be wrong is that you're not actually a child of God because he gifts us all with certain spiritual gifts. A second thing that could be wrong, that you're not diligently searching for or recognizing the gift that God has given you, so you're just sitting on the gift rather than using it. Now, I've found that uh, there is a special place for everybody to serve, but God may not reveal that to you immediately. We talked about that a little bit last week. And if you don't know what particular area that God wants you to serve in yet, that doesn't mean you just sit idly by and do nothing. Because all of us have been called to be witnesses for Christ, and all of us can be involved in the ministry in that way. There are also various physical things that are done in the church that need to be taken care of. Somebody takes care of lawns, somebody trims the bushes, somebody picks up tables and chairs, somebody cooks meals for sick people on special days, and so uh, cooks on special days for the church, somebody cleans up all of that mess, somebody does all of those things. And that somebody could be you. See, I don't think that God is too much interested in using anyone for outstanding things until we're all ready to do the mundane tasks, the simple little things in the church that need to be done. See, you don't know how many times that I've seen people in the church walk by a piece of paper that's laying on the floor. And they just walk by it and go by it and say, well, I won't pick that up. Because they know, well, somebody's going to pick that up, but it's not going to be me. One of my sources of irritation, and not, not getting on anyone in particular here, but that's when the, when the garbage truck comes. 
When's he come? Wednesday, maybe? Wednesday, I think. The garbage guy comes on Wednesday, and he picks up our dumpsters out here, and he uh, pulls it outside of the gate, put, and he lifts it up with the truck, and he dumps that. Then he sits it back down, but he doesn't put it back inside the gate. And there will be 40 people that will walk by that dumpster sitting in the middle of the parking lot and nobody says, that doesn't look too good sitting in the middle of the parking lot. I think that I'll push that back behind the gate and get it out of the way. You know, I do that at home. When the garbage trucks come, I, uh, after they're finished, I put up my garbage cans for two reasons. I own the house, and the HOA says if I don't do it, they're going to fine me for not putting up the garbage cans. But I'd probably do that anyway because it looks good for my neighborhood. I, I own the, uh, you know, that I, I want my neighborhood to look nice, so I have some care and concern for that. And here's something I think all of us need to realize about God's house: that this is our house too, that this is what He's given us, and we need to take a little bit of pride in the, uh, the right kind of pride in the thing that God has given us, and take care of God's house. Now, this is His house; we're His children, so it belongs to us too. We're all in it together. And then I might add something to that as well, that we're all in it together for the support of God's house. Now, God has given us requirements about supporting his work, and he's told us that we do need to tithe. And so if you drop 2 or $3 into the offering plate or $20 into the offering plate uh, whenever you're here, and you think that that's a tithe, well, that's not a tithe unless that's 10% of your income. And God expects us to do that. And we ought not to rob God, as the Word of God says, and shirk that responsibility of taking care of the support of God's house. You, know, you try sending $5 to your landlord or $3 to PG&E. How, do you think they're going to like that? No. They're not going to accept that. And God really doesn't accept less than the tithe. So we haven't really tithed until we've given him what he requires. Well, let's move on to our sixth point tonight in the agency of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of a Christian. Tonight I want to talk to you about verification. And this is, this is fairly similar to the last point about demonstration, that the Holy Spirit verifies his presence. Now, the Holy Spirit demonstrates his presence. I've kind of split that out, that he demonstrates his presence by giving spiritual gifts, and he verifies his presence by producing fruit. So that's what I want to talk to you about tonight, the fruits of the Spirit. If a fruit tree, I've never raised any fruit trees or anything like that. I've had fruit trees in the backyard of places that I've lived, and you know they were there before I got there, and they were planted by somebody else. But I know enough about a fruit tree, and you do too, that if a fruit tree is alive and doing well, it's going to yield its fruit in its proper season. And the Bible teaches us that if you are alive by the Holy Spirit, that he will produce his fruit in your life. Now, in the simplest terms, what is the fruit of the Spirit? The simplest terms is that the fruit of the Spirit is the production of the likeness of Christ in you. Now, if we take this passage in Galatians, which here mentions nine different fruits, we can see that all nine of these are characteristics that are found in the life of Christ. Now, I want to take just a couple of these. We'll see how these are demonstrated in Christ's life. And we notice that in the list, and starting in verse number 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love will be demonstrated in the Christian life. Now, the Apostle Paul puts that first 
Because that is the real great identifying mark that a person truly is a child of God, that he has love. That is a number one characteristic. Now in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul was speaking about love and he talked about people having all these ennobling gifts that people are looking for, the ability to speak in tongues, the the prophesying, faith that can move mountains, acts of philanthropy. And he said if those gifts are not actually done in the love of God or motivated by the love of God, then they mean nothing at all. See, everything that that Christ did for us was motivated by love. Love is an inherent attribute of God. There's no requirement for God to do anything for us. There's no compulsion that he should give Christ to die for our sins. There is no motivation outside of any sort. That motivation must arise within himself. God had his own reasons. Love is inherent in, in him, and this is why he gave us that love. And so when we receive Christ through regeneration, there has to be a change in us because the kind of life that he gives is no other kind of life than this, that it comes from the love of Christ and has the love of Christ that will be demonstrated in us. And so if we don't have that, then we aren't really true believers in Jesus Christ. Now there we find a very, very simple formula that verifies Christ's presence. Nobody can love like Christ loved, loved unless, unless Christ is in him. And if Christ is in that person, then he will love as Christ loved. There is no other, there is no other way around this. It, it, it's going to happen. And what is that presence of Christ in it? Well, it's the very subject that we're talking about tonight. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. But we also ought to note how that God's love is not one-dimensional. Christ demonstrated his love often by tenderness and great compassion. He called people to him and with a broken heart he, he wept over their unbelief. And at times you find in Scripture that Christ was amazingly tender, even in the face of rejection and in the face of those who would hurt him. But then there are other times when Christ demonstrated love with great sternness. Not only did he do it in compassion, but he also had great sternness. Remember, he went into the temple and he cleansed the temple. And that was actually an act of love. It was an act of love for holiness and standards of righteousness. And so the Bible teaches that it is possible to love by being compassionate and by being stern. Now let me show you how that's demonstrated on our level. We find it in the book of Galatians, so we're already there. So if you'll take a look in the fourth chapter of Galatians, we find uh, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing this letter, is just dealing with the the foolishness of the Galatian people uh, for departing from the gospel of grace and substituting for it a gospel of works. And he was stern with them because this was very dangerous doctrine. And quite frankly, he told them in, in so many words that they were stupid for turning away from the truth. And so they weren't any too pleased with the way that he handled them. Now he told them that at first they had received his teachings gladly, that they loved him. Now notice what he says in verses 14 and 15 in chapter 4. He says, And my temptation which is in my flesh he despised not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that had it been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. So when Paul first 
brought the gospel to this church, they were so glad. They, they didn't have anything but praise for him. There was nothing that they would not do and try, to try to repay him for bringing them the gospel of Christ. But something happened. And the false doctrine crept in and they turned on Paul. Many of them were even starting to believe that Paul wasn't even an apostle. And so he spent two chapters defending his apostleship. Now notice what he says in verse 16. He said, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? So Paul was very stern with them. He had to get plain with them. He had to spell it out that they were dead wrong, that they were guilty of an egregious violation against the faith of Christ. And the way that we would put it is that Paul had to get down and dirty with them. I mean, he had to get right to the point. He had to be very stern. And this is why he approached the problem in that way. Now, that sternness was an act of love. It's because he wanted their souls to prosper. He wanted God's blessings to be on them. He wanted them to live productive lives for Christ rather than wasting away all of their time, spending their time in other things when they could be spending it laying up treasures in heaven. So Paul's idea of sternness in his love was to get them to the place where they were good servants of Christ, where they could be blessed by God, and that was best for their souls. Now let me show you how that applies in our church. It's always, most of you know me very well, I've been here a long time, and you know that it's always been my method to try to get people to do the right thing by showing you the Word of God, by showing you what the Bible says, and then let the Word of God speak for itself. And I expect that if people are real Christians, that they will act on what the Word of God says. But sometimes there are church members that are so obstinate that the messages bounce off of them. It's like throwing a tennis ball against a brick wall. I mean, it just bounces back at me. And so the message, either it just bounces off or it goes over their head. And some people just sit there stupidly thinking, I'm talking about somebody else all the time. And they never take the word of God to their heart. So what happens? Well, they get further and further away from God and they become so blind they can't even see it any longer. So I have to change the tactic. And I have to get very plain, and I have to get down to the nitty-gritty and say, Hey, I'm talking to you. This is what you're doing wrong. And I might have to call somebody in my office sometimes and say, This is what you're doing wrong, and this needs to change. And so I would say, Am I your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? Is that wrong? Is that something bad that I'm trying to do to you? Well, no, I'm not trying to hurt anybody. I'm not really angry with anybody. I want you to be blessed by God. I don't want you to live in chastisement. It's like Paul. I want your soul to prosper. And so sometimes we have to do this. We have to show some tough love. And maybe I need to do some more of that because there's some people that just don't seem to get this. Now, look at this passage again in the 12th verse. He says, Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. You have not injured me at all. Now, actually, it's kind of hard to figure out what Paul's saying in that verse. But he seems to be saying this. Your actions don't break, make or break my ministry. I'm not really hurt by what you say because I stand before the Lord as I always did. Your opinion doesn't alter my standing. Your actions hurt you, not me. And that's what I would say. I'm not personally offended by what people do. I'm offended because of the cause of Christ. I'm offended for him. Your actions hurt you. And so if you get mad at me for telling the truth, you just cut off your nose to spite your face. No good's going to come of that. 
Because you're the one that suffers, not me. So do you understand what I'm saying? The love of Christ in us has more than one dimension. Now, some people think that the way to show love is just to be tolerant. Let people do anything that they want. Just be totally forbearing and let stuff go. That's not really love. That's not really love at all. Real love exercises the other side of this. You know it with your own kids. I mean, they they may really love to play in the street. But you go out there and you jerk them back and you don't let them do that because you know they're going to get hurt. That could kill them. And people, I think, just really miss this. And, and they believe that they're being like Christ and they are bearing the fruit of the Spirit when actually they've only caught one dimension of Christ. They're trying to be the compassionate side in that and that's a good thing. But we also have to see in the Scripture that Jesus was also very sternly corrective. And it takes both types of love to be like Christ. Now we take a look at the second fruit that's mentioned here. And I'm not going to talk about all these because this is not really a, a message on fruits of the Spirit. It's rather just an overview of the work of the Spirit. But the second one that Paul has in his list is joy. Verse 22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Now what do you think of when you think of joy? When the Bible says joy, what is it you think of? Well, we usually think of happiness. We think of the delights of knowing Christ. We might think about skipping and hopping and singing our way through life. I mean, joy comes when everything is going well. There's never a care in the world. And that's a nice thought. There's joy in that. But that's not actually the full, full picture of joy. That's only one aspect of it. We can be joyful when things are going swimmingly along. But the Bible also teaches that a Christian should have joy also in the worst experiences of life. Now, I'd like you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to look here to see what Peter has to say about this. And we'll start in verse number 3, where uh, Peter starts to lay out some really sublime thoughts, and he asks us to think about these things, and these are things that can really make your heart soar into the heavens with joy. So he says in 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, does that make you happy? I mean, I look at that and I say, wow, there's just some wonderful things there. We have this living hope in Christ. We have an inheritance that's incorruptible. Now, let me stop there for just a moment and kind of add a personal note here. Do you notice how the King James says this? To an inheritance incorruptible. You know, that's kind of a peculiar way that the King James has of saying things, that often it puts the modifiers after the noun. Now, I've been reading the King James all of my life, and I have this terrible problem when I write of putting modifiers after the noun, and that's not the way that we normally speak. So I remember when I was, uh, when I was a uh, freshman in college that I handed in my first term paper in the freshman comp class, and the teacher graded it and handed it back to me with a C. And it said, great content, but it sounds just like the King James Bible. <laughs> well... This sounds great. There's a lot of joy when you think about salvation, when you think about heaven, when you think about being kept safe 
and being secure by the power of God. But then notice how Peter follows this up in verse 6. He says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. Now, he's actually writing to people that are suffering severe persecution. And did he expect that their joy would be diminished by all the trouble they were going through? You know, many people think that the, there's no way that you can be happy when everything that can go wrong does go wrong. When you're living in the middle of Murphy's Law, you think there's no possible way that you can be happy. But Peter says here that a real Christian who has the Holy Spirit never loses his joy. He says, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, and whom though now ye see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory." receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. And do you notice here that that is the result of manifold temptations? It's the result of the trial of your faith in the fire? So the Holy Spirit's presence is verified by joy in both good times and in the bad. And maybe there's even more joy in the bad because in the bad times... That's when you learn to depend on God more. That's when you know that you really need him more. And that's when you really find out that God is on your side. And so you say, the Lord's on my side, so I won't fear what man can do to me. So you can look, just go down the list of fruits and you see Christ in these. And what you see is a multidimensional Christ. And, and when you have the Holy Spirit in you, you will become a multidimensional Christian. When you get Christ, you get all of him. When you get the Holy Spirit, you get all of him. Now that brings me to another thought. And secondly, we'll talk about here the filling of the Spirit. Now if you would, let's go to Ephesians uh, chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. So you're there in Galatians. Just flip, if that's where you are, just flip a few pages over. Um, I guess you're back in 1 Peter. So go back to uh, to Ephesians. But chapter 5. And and in the 18th verse of this chapter, we have a very familiar statement. I know that you're probably familiar with. Ephesians 5.18, which says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Much of the time when that verse is taught, the emphasis is placed on be not drunk with wine. It's if that's the main thought here, and what we have is actually... Uh, the antithesis to being filled with the Spirit. So drinking alcohol is bad, being filled with the Spirit is good. But that's not actually what Paul is saying. Although it's true, drinking alcohol is bad. Now this is where I need to say one of those mean things before I go on. I, I don't understand preachers, I don't understand Christians, I don't understand people that supposedly know the Word of God that with pure stupidity would think that it's all right to drink alcohol. That doesn't mesh in my brain that preachers or anybody else could not see the wickedness and the evil of drinking alcohol. But that be as it may, the Apostle Paul is not talking here about that particular subject. He's talking about being out of control. And when you're under the influence of alcohol, when you're under the influence of something that takes control of you, then you don't know what you're doing. And he says that rather what you should be is filled with the Spirit and let Him be the one that controls you. 
So it's really a, a comparison statement. It's not really talking about the virtues of drinking alcohol or not drinking alcohol. But we pull those other implications out of it because that's good to do as well. But then he goes on in the next verse and he talks about, uh, explains the filling of the Spirit, or rather how the filling of the Spirit is verified. And he says in verse 19, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now, I'm not speaking here about how to be filled right now, but I'm talking about the verification that you are filled. So how do you know that you are a spirit-filled Christian? Well, in this passage, we would have to be thinking about what, what are the things that you talk about? What, what are the subjects of your conversations? And according to the 19th verse, spirit-filled Christians, as Paul says here, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, what does that mean? How do you speak to one another? He's talking here in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Does that mean when you come to the church and somebody says, well, how are you today? And you say, oh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all nations that forget God. And the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. Or, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. Is that what happens when somebody speaks to a church? Well, that's not really what he's talking about. What he's talking about here is, do you have the Word of God on your mind? Do you have the mercies of God in your thoughts? Do you have the delight of heavenly things in your mind? Do you love to talk about Jesus? Does He fill up your conversations? You know, sometimes I wonder what visitors think when they come into our church and the vestibule is filled with conversations about 49ers and pro football teams. Now, if you're talking about Kentucky basketball, it's entirely different matter. But if you're talking about that, I mean, this, what, are our, what are our conversations about? What, what are people here is talking about? Now, verse 20 says that a spirit-filled Christian will give thanks always to God for all things. So you listen to the conversation of many Christians. And and I'm guilty of this as well. We complain about things. We're grumpy when we get to the church. I mean, the kids wouldn't get in the car on time. They wouldn't get the seatbelts buckled and get buckled in like they're supposed to. And we're just all upset. And we're complaining about things. You know, what I like to do... I mean, this, this is, that's one of the things that irked me. When the kids, when they were young, when they wouldn't get in the car, everybody wouldn't get to church on time. I mean, I always like to get up and get going and get to church. I'd rather be 30 minutes early than I would to be 30 seconds late. My wife has a different constitution. A little bit different from me. I mean, uh, you know, if she gets there 10 seconds before the hallelujah starts, that's okay with her. She's, she's glad to do that. So we solved our problem. We drive two cars a lot of times. But when, I'm, when, I, when I get to church, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy, but I realize that sometimes I complain too much as if, you know, when something bad happens that God's not really been good to me. But the scriptures teach us that all things work together for good. Everything works out for good. You know what I found out sometimes that when we were, kids wouldn't get in the car on time and, you know, you get all upset and think, oh man, this is another Sunday where I have to rush to get to church. And you find out because you waited five minutes later to leave that you were five minutes behind a serious accident that happened. You know, God has a way of working things out for good. Now what you don't do is you don't take what I said. Now there's my excuse. I live five minutes from the church 
And so if, if I leave too early, the street's going to blow up. No, no, that's not, that's not an excuse. Get, try to get to church on time. Now, the third verification that we find in these verses is submissiveness. Verse 21 says, submitting yourself one another in the fear of God. See, what we have to be willing to do is to stay within God's framework. Now, if you go on reading here, you'll find that he talks about wives being submissive to their husbands. He says that husbands need to submit to Christ. Children must submit to their parents. Employees are to submit to their employers. That the church submits to Christ. All of us submit to God. And so if you're out of order in those things, then you're not a spirit-filled Christian. Now, wives, you know, sometimes wives don't like that. They don't want, don't want to hear about submissiveness. But if you don't, take it up with the Holy Spirit. Take it up with Paul. They're the ones that said these things. And, and let me throw this in as well. In other places, the Word of God says that we are to submit to the authority of the pastor. You need to watch out how much grief that you give to the pastor. See, being a spirit-filled Christian means that you make the ministry of the pastor joyous, not grievous. So, if you go to lunch and you have me along with your Big Mac, you are not a spirit-filled Christian. Now, let's wrap it up here this evening. I, I didn't really want to keep you too long. Uh, the verification of the Holy Spirit. We find you. How do you talk? Are you thankful? Are you submissive? But it's also a fair question, how can we be filled? Now, we don't have time really tonight to go into all of that, but let me just give you something briefly here. I'll quote, I'll quote to you, and I'll summarize by quoting William MacDonald. How can you be filled with the Holy Spirit? Number one, 1 John 1, 5 through 9, confess and put away your sins. Confess and put away your sins. Romans 12, 1 and 2, this is the second way. Yield yourself completely to the Spirit's control. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2. Colossians 3, 16 is the third way. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then fourthly, Galatians 2, 20. Empty self of self. And I think that the last one there, that may be the key to all of this. Now, we are talking to born-again believers. Nobody else can be filled with the Spirit. And this is what Jesus said. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so if you want the Holy Spirit to fill you, you have to fall in line behind Jesus, walking in his footsteps. And the person that regenerates you, the one that enables you, the one that gives you the power to do this, is who? That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God is the one who fills you to the brim with the graces of Jesus Christ. That person is the Holy Spirit. Now, as I said, I didn't want to keep you too long tonight. So in the next message, we're going to finish up point number three. And I'm going to give you some additional thoughts then about uh, distinction. And what I want to talk to you about is how you distinguish the real works of the Spirit from those who claim that they're doing the works of the Spirit. And that next part of the message will set us up for part number four, where we'll get into a discussion of the abuse of the Holy Spirit. Now, there is a lot of stuff out there that people claim is being done by the Holy Spirit's power. And uh, they say, the Spirit did this. Well, there's a Spirit in it, that's for sure. And we'll talk about that next week, who that Spirit actually is, whether certain things that are being done 
and we'll take a couple, three weeks on that actually, those things that are being done, are they actually the work of the Holy Spirit? And we need to know that too. How are we going to distinguish what's true, what truly the Holy Spirit is doing, and what he's not doing? That's important as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for your word tonight, and we thank you for your Holy Spirit. We appreciate so much his work in our lives and how that we... Uh, learn so much from him. Uh, we learn how to be like Jesus. It gives us the power to work in our church. Lord, help us to be dependent upon that. And uh, may we listen to the Holy Spirit's leading in all that we do. We just give you the thanks for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.